First of all, uh, Vicky and I would like to thank all of you who uh, were there last week at our 25th uh, celebration, uh, 25 years of pastoring here at C3 Nord, uh, and also thank you for your wonderful gifts. We really appreciate your love and uh, what you, you've actually given into our lives. So thank you very much for that. Uh, before I actually preach the word, let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, I thank you that the power of your Holy Spirit is here. It is not my words that have the power, it is your spirit behind those words. I thank you that as people hear, their hearts are softened, their minds are opened, that we are able to make change in our lives that is positive and for the better, and that incorporates your will more and more into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. That was odd. Do I have to pray in the dark? <laughs> anyway, who, who remembers the week before was Good Friday? Because we've had two, two holiday Mondays in a row. So, and we didn't have a Sunday service at Easter. We only had Good Friday. So it'll probably be a bit hard to remember what I actually preached. But it was actually, it was actually all about the Easter celebration and the, the communion that we, we um, commemorated this morning was part of that celebration of what Jesus has done for us to actually allow us in, into the presence of God. Uh, we remember this sacrifice every time we take communion, like we did this morning. And it's, it's interesting that sometimes we don't get it, but we can rest assured that the disciples didn't get it either. Jesus gave his life for us so that we could be in the presence of God. But the disciples had the same questions that we have today, is that, am I really invited? Does God really want to have a communion with me? And the other thing is, well, if I am invited, what do I have to bring? We talked about you know, this whole idea of you don't turn up at other people's places with, with nothing. Even if they've said, you know, come, just bring yourselves, don't bring anything. You feel obliged to you know, bring that sort of bottle of wine that you've had dusting away in the cellar for years or, or go out and buy a six-pack of something cheap or a, a box of Cadbury favourites. We, we've got this feeling that we, we need to bring something. And so we're tentative when it comes to approaching God because we're not sure of what the promise of Jesus has actually done for us. And interestingly enough, the disciples had no clue either. Um, and we discover in, in Matthew 26, 28, which is the story of, of the Passover where Jesus actually lets them or asks them to take communion for the first time. And in verse 26, it says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. He broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Now we know that the disciples understood very well the symbol of Passover, which was the celebration that they were having at the time. But we know that because the Passover celebrated the rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt on that last, that last plague where the, the firstborn uh, was going to be killed unless the blood of the lamb was placed on the, on the doorframe of the house. And so they understood the symbolism of Passover, 
But they were waiting for Jesus to bring the same sort of retribution that God brought on Pharaoh. They were waiting for their enemies to die before them, for them to rise up and, and build a new kingdom here on earth. And so the significance of the bread and the wine and the, and the fact that Jesus was going to make a sacrifice was totally lost on them. They were dumb asses. And so we, we should take hope because, you know, if they, they, they actually wandered around with Jesus and if they didn't get it, you sort of think, well, it's okay if it's a bit difficult for us to actually get what Jesus is talking about. And we have the, we have the benefit of hindsight. You know, 2020 hindsight is, is really useful to have. But Jesus' subsequent death on the cross and sh- shocked and scared them because it destroyed all these expectations. And it wasn't until they saw him again after the resurrection that they began to understand the enormity of what Jesus had done. And we see this in, in Luke 24, 36, because they're all, they're all in a room. They're all discussing what a bad week they've had. And it says, just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Change your pants. Oh, that's just a given. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies As you see, I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. So we've got this weird dynamic going on. The disciples are really glad to see him. It's a a relief to think that all they've gone through, it's okay, Jesus is alive. But they've got this question of, why is he alive? It's it's great you're here, Jesus, but why? Um, And so he has to explain to them that, what the purpose of his sacrifice is. And so in verse 46, he says, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And the message is, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You're all witnesses to all of these things. So he points out that something new has happened and they should, they should get their, their act together because they were witnesses to all of this. And so basically he reiterates here what he told them in Matthew 26, that he's opened the way for all humankind to be cleansed of their sin through repentance, which allows them into the presence of his Father in heaven. And this is where we put most of our focus as Christians, and rightly so, because it's the foundation of our salvation And Jesus, as God's only son, was the only person able to accomplish this. This is embodied in in the statement that the Bible Project uses to define their purpose. They exist to help people discover that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now, however, we don't want to get so caught up in the excitement of discovering Jesus and recognize his sacrifice and accept his gift of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life that we forget that the story doesn't end there. Jesus only opened the door. Luke 24, 49 says, And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. 
And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So we can see three things here. First, Jesus has left the building. Second, Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. Third, the Holy Spirit is going to fill them with power. And so you've got to ask, if Jesus is the center of our faith, why did he leave? Well, that is answered because he's sending the Holy Spirit in his place. Because Jesus was only one man in one place, able to do, even though he was God, things in a certain sphere of influence. Because the Holy Spirit is everywhere, all-powerful, all at once, and able to do all things all over the earth. And the Holy Spirit was going to fill them with what? Power. Why do you need power? Because <laughs> you don't have any. Very good answer. <laughs> See? Teachers in C3 Kids know to look for the simple things. <laughs> I don't know whether you've ever noticed, but when preachers ask questions, it's never too complicated. We're, n- we're not that clever. Believe it. Um, and so, yeah, they, they don't have any, but the, the idea is, have you ever noticed in your house, uh, most houses at least have power attached to them? Now, have you ever wandered in there at night and stubbed your toe on something because you haven't turned the light on? Well, that's because you've got power, but you're not using it. If you'd turned the light on, you'd be able to see and you wouldn't have stubbed your toe. And so here, it's obviously that the Holy Spirit is going to fill the disciples with power, not so that they can stumble around in the dark, so that they can actually do something with that power. Yeah. And this is, this, this is the really exciting thing, I think, is that, in that Jesus gave himself for us, but then Jesus gave us each other. Now, I know that most of the time we are absolutely ecstatic that Jesus gave himself for us, but we're not too keen on the idea that he gave us each other. Because who gets on well with Jesus? Who gets on well with everybody else? It's sometimes a bit problematic. And yet we can see through what we've, I've just talked about that Jesus' whole plan was to, once he'd opened the door, was to let us walk through the door and continue what his legacy was going to be. And basically, Jesus left spirit-filled people in his place to invite people to sit at God's table on his behalf. And it's something we call church. I want to unpack the significance of this and how the Holy Spirit can show us how this should play out in our lives in the coming weeks, but I want to start with perhaps looking at how our perception of how this idea of the church started and how the perception that we have impacts the way we perceive our role in today's society and the impact that we can have. Because who who knows, the first thing that happened in the church was what every pastor desires and that is church growth. The day of Pentecost saw the fledgling organisation of Christ followers have their first first growth spurt. Um, Acts 22.41 says, those who believe what Peter said were baptised and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Great growth statistics. And it gets better. Verse 42 says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So things were going swimmingly. And continues verse 47 all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people 
And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So not only were things going well, but everybody, including those who did not join the community of believers, thought well of them. Now this seems a miraculous turn of events until we realise that most of the people thought that these Christ followers were basically just another Jewish sect. After all, they went to the synagogue, they worshipped at the temple, they read the Old Testament. Do you know why they read the Old Testament? The New Testament wasn't in print yet. They were, they were living it. And so they were, they were Jewish in all respects, apart from the fact that they'd had a revelation that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so they had the goodwill of the people because they just thought this is another bunch of really friendly, really outgoing, really positive people who have a great message that we really love. And so, yeah, let's embrace them all. Um, but it wasn't until people started to realize that there was a fundamental difference in the beliefs of the, this new community that the wheels began to fall off. Acts 4, chapter 1. Peter and John are speaking to the people. And while they were doing that, it says they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and since it was already evening, threw them in jail until morning. So here we are enjoying the goodwill of the people and suddenly somebody says, oh, I don't like what you're saying. Um, to jail with you. <laughs> At least until we can see what happens in the morning. And as they went on, we discover that when they spoke in front of the, the, um, their accusers in the morning, their accusers were really impressed with what they said. But they hated what they said. And they only let them go because they didn't know what they were going to charge them with to keep them. And because everybody else liked what they said, they thought that if they kept them in jail, there was going to be a riot. And so there was this fundamental difference began to show that there was something different going on here. The people that the disciples were reaching with the gospel message, including those who joined their fellowship, were so far Jews. And the Jewish people had a relationship with Yahweh that stretched back centuries. And tradition and habit alone made their preconceptions about God really hard to overcome. And it highlights how the disciples struggled. And I'm reading some wonderful person in our congregation lent us a book, which is a novelised version of Paul's story, ironically called Paul the Novel. Um, and it's by a guy called Walter Wangerin. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating reading because it actually talks about Paul's story from the point of view of the people around him. Now, although a lot of the scenarios are, are imagined by the author, the, um, the places and the, the actions of the disciples are actually taken straight from Scripture. So he, he hasn't played fast and loose with the, the actual places and whatever, but he's incorporated in there the dynamics of what people would have thought of what Paul was saying. And it's told from the perspective of some of the disciples who were Jewish, and some of the disciples who came in as Gentiles, and how the discussions that they had, we read in Scripture and we talk about, we see how, how Paul uh, discussed you know, the need for circumcision or eating kosher food, and we know that Peter had a, a vision where unclean food was lowered towards him. 
and that uh, he got somebody, who was it, he got to see Cornelius? I've forgotten. Was that Paul? Peter? One of the disciples had to go and visit this Roman centurion who was totally Gentile-ish, eating all the wrong things, didn't, didn't have a Jewish history, and yet as soon as he started preaching, the whole household started speaking in tongues. This is just not right. This is not how religion's supposed to work. And so there's all these people, and when we read scripture, we get this feeling that there was a steamroller effect, that the power of the Holy Spirit and the, and the, and the enthusiasm of the disciples was so great that everybody just said, oh, wow, yes, 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 give me more. This is No. These were Jews with hundreds of years of tradition in their lives that, that had molded their behavior every single day. And they see things that their eyes cannot deny. They hear things that make sense, that they know have to be true. And yet they're fighting these impulses inside. For years, you know, you, you couldn't be right with God unless you ate kosher food and were circumcised. And yet you get this guy called Titus who comes in, who is obviously full of the Holy Spirit. Nobody's denying that. But Paul says, well, I've got Titus here and there's no way that I am going to make him get circumcised. And they're all... Yeah, I can see why it's not necessary, but he really should. Um, and Titus invites them to dinner, and he's got non-kosher food, and so they, none of them turn up, even though they know that that's, that's not important anymore. Their, their habits and their, and their cultural um, mores hold them back from accepting Jesus Christ. Does, this any, does any of this sound familiar? <laughs> and yet this is... This is first century. All you have to do is put a two in front of that. And here we are in the 21st century with exactly the same problems. And it highlights how the disciples struggled not only with the attitudes of others, but also with their own prejudices and traditions that flew in the face of what they had witnessed during Jesus' ministry on earth. Even operating with the tangible presence and power of the Holy Spirit, there's a sense of constant struggle against their own cultural and religious biases to present the truth of Luke 24:47, which resonates strongly, I think, with the challenges facing the church right now. And Luke 24:47 paraphrase says that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of Jesus' name, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. We've been sent to proclaim that message. Jesus opened the door and gave his life for us, but then he gave us us. And we are in his place to actually present that same message. And the reason that we're better together is because we need to make sure that we understand what Jesus has done in our life so that we can actually support each other and do that. Because you know, even though this, this story I'm reading is fictionalized, you can see the, the pain and the angst that Paul and a lot of the other disciples went through when they went out to preach to people. And when I say pain, I mean real pain. People got enthusiastic and excited about Paul's message, except for those who didn't, who stoned him. So you could be there sort of reveling in the, in the sort of acceptance of people and the power of the Holy Spirit falling on people and suddenly you're lying there injured under a pile of rocks. That's not something that we want happening 
on Sunday mornings, which is why we ban stones in church. <laughs> and so in the coming weeks, I want us to unpack this idea of that we have been brought together, not to sit in church and just worship the God who saves, but to actually take part in what he opened the door for us to participate in. And so it's a bit like, and I told Brendan I wasn't going to use this example, but it's too good to miss. We, we look at when we come together, there's this whole idea of unity which implies uniformity. And I was struck by the pictures you see uh, on the web. If you ever look up uh, tortoise or testudo, uh, you get a picture of Roman soldiers who are lined up with their shields, square shields in front of them and shields over the top protecting themselves. And that they are working in unison together to make sure that they, they don't get killed. And it works very well. Their unity is what protects them. But the thing that puts people off, I think, is if you notice the shields, if you notice, they're, they're all level. They all look the same. They're all neatly piled on top of one and each other. And we look at that and you see, see, unity means that we've all got to be the same. It doesn't work and if, we're, if we're different. And so in church, you're all trying to make us the same. You're trying to make us like you. I don't want, you know, it'd be nice to think a church full of me's would be great, but I wouldn't wish that on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what we forget is that behind the scenes, the things that are the same in that picture are the weapons they use. The shields are all the same. Well, we've got no idea whether there's some tiny guy there holding his shield up like that. Some guy there who has to duck because he's too, too high. Some guy who's got two shields because he's really broad. Um, we, it, it's not the uniformity of the people behind the weapons that actually counts. It's the agreement that they've made to, to uniformly fight, to protect themselves and to advance forward with the same weapons each person has. And I think this is, this is where we make the mistake of, of worrying that if we go to church, they're going to make us all the same. No, we're going to give you all the same weapons, but how you use them is up to you. And the idea of church and the idea of a church community is that so we can come together, dress each other's wounds when we've been out to battle, encourage each other, repair each other's weapons, you know, prayer, reading the word of God, all of those things we need to do in community to build and to strengthen each other. Keeps attacking me, that table. <laughs> so I want to I leave you this, with that this morning and, and finish by issuing an invitation to that proclamation that made Jesus and the disciples so unpopular. There is forgiveness of sin for all who repent. Jesus has issued an invitation to the whole planet that if, if you accept me as the Son of God, if we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour, we lay down our life for His, then He will accept us as children of God. And when we repent of our sins, He allows us access to His Father in heaven. Now if you want to take, it, it takes a step of agreement. We have to agree with Jesus that that's, that's how he operates in our lives. We have to say, yes, Jesus, I accept your offer. I ask you to forgive my sins. Please accept me as a child of God. And thank you for your sacrifice 
in making me a sinless person. If you're online and you want to actually take that step, you want to find out more, uh, please press the raise hand button in the chat and our chat host will be able to speak to you privately about the next step to take. If you're here this morning and you've resonated with something that I've said, you think, okay, I need to actually take that step of following Jesus, of confessing my sins, of repenting and allowing him to be the Lord of my life. I'd love to speak to you after the service. I'll be down the front here um, uh, when the service is finished and I'd love to talk to you and take you through the next steps. So please avail yourself of that. Thank you, Ashley.